Hello, and welcome to Meta Perspective with Matt and Andy, the show exploring how to think, act, and be in a complex and uncertain world. This is episode number three. So you might be new here, or you might be returning, but either way, it's great to have you on board and sharing this journey with us. So where did we get to last time? Well, last time we were talking about the relationship between us as individuals and the world we find ourselves in. We refer to the individual as the agent and the world we find ourselves in as the arena. And we discussed how we as individuals shape our environment and how in turn our environment shapes us. If you remember, at the end of the last episode, we were talking about knowing your arena and knowing yourself as being two key components of navigating complexity and change. So in this episode, we're going to dive into and focus on the arena side, looking at the forces that have influenced and continue to influence it today. Before we jump in, I think a useful thing to know is that this will probably feel like two episodes in one when you listen through it, with a common theme, a thread between them being what I would call legacy mindsets ways of thinking and perceiving the world that we carry with us from the past. More specifically, we'll be discussing the effects of industrialization and the legacies that's left on our arena. So part one is an exploration into how that thinking has shaped us, looking closely at some of the things that we might have lost as a result of seeing the world from a purely industrialized viewpoint. The second is more about how organizations are built upon this legacy mindset and how that shapes and actively influences the world that we're in today, and how we might want to think about that going forwards. This part will definitely feel more like a deep dive before everything comes together at the end. Anyway, enough from me, let's get stuck into the show. And remember, if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email to hello at metaperspective.io, all one word, to continue the conversation. We would really love to hear from you. Enjoy the show. So far on our experimental show, let's say, we we had an opening conversation exploring everything we think we want to talk about in a podcast series. And as a result of that conversation, loads of really interesting avenues opened up for us to explore. And one of the foundational themes that we found when we were speaking, something that we think is going to undergird a lot of what we talk about, is the relationship between the agent and the arena. So in our last conversation, we actually went really deep into what does it mean to be an agent and and what is an arena and are there different types of arenas? And something that we fell upon when we were talking about the agent and the arena was the idea that not just there is an agent, which means a person that feels empowered to act within the world, and there's an arena, which is the environment that can shape the agent. There is actually a dynamic coupling between the agent and the arena and how how you interact with your arena can influence you and how your arena is shaped can also influence you. And we kind of started talking about this and getting into some insights around that. So I was wondering if if you had any thoughts around that particular bit that we got to in the conversation. Yes, this sort of co-evolution of us as agents in the arena that we find ourselves in was something really interesting to explore and, and you've set it up really nicely. I think where we were getting to at the end of the last conversation, was a really interesting set of conclusions, which is around whether there is more 
power and influence appearing in the arena now than ever before in human history. Power that's manifesting itself in, in different ways. And we touched a little bit about the information ecology, the sense of where do we get information from that helps us make sense of the arena we're in and therefore of ourselves and what we should do in terms of how we see our identity, how we make meaning and how we undertake action in the world. And the power that seems to be growing in the arena and the use of, especially the information technologies, I think, in the way that what we see and imbibe, if you like, to make sense of what's out there is increasingly being curated and shaped by algorithms and institutions who have other agendas. That Our ability to make sense of the world is somewhat compromised. So we're entering an interesting phase in history where retaining our individual autonomy, being able to make sense of the world, make sense of ourselves and our place in it, requires even more work and effort than perhaps it's ever done before, especially in a time as we see ourselves now where there's more uncertainty. The meta crises that we talked about in our first episode are kind of manifesting itself, whether it's you know health crisis from COVID or financial crisis or meaning crisis, educational crisis, the crisis of work that may come through with increased automation. There's a sense of insecurity and uncertainty, which means that having our wits about us, <laughs> being able to think clearly, understand our place in the world and how we as agents can contribute to rebalancing the arena for the benefit of ourselves individually and collectively. And I think that was a, an area that we got to in our conversation last time. And it, it's something interesting to explore. And maybe it's something we look at that kind of changing nature of the agent arena relationships has I mean, fundamentally changed in the last few hundred years. So it's almost interesting to go back and look at how through various epochs in history that relationship has evolved in quite a paradigmatic way, which has led to our current situation, which may give us some clues as to how we think about where we go next. One of the key things for me from that last conversation about the, the agent and the arena is this kind of understanding that a lot of people are having now. I think that the environment that we are currently in, our, our current arena, has undergone so much transformation under such a short amount of time that we're all sitting here thinking, what are we doing here? What is going on? There's so much uncertainty and so much complexity involved in the arena that we currently sit within. It's almost as if we need to take a step back and understand what is happening, what's happening to the arena because of what we were saying in our last conversation, which is this has such a huge effect on your sense of agency and your sense of autonomy. So for us to take a step back and to look at that is so important. And I think one of the things that we were getting to is the more that you can know your arena and the more that you can know yourself, the more you have an opportunity to shape that arena and to mm. shape yourself for the better. Because when we were talking about this sense of dynamic coupling, the idea that both influence each other, the real power, the real empowerment comes from understanding that if you get to know arena and if you're not scared of understanding the uncertainty and complexity then you can play a role in shaping that for the better 
And I think that's something that we all need to do. We need to take on this responsibility to say, okay, our arena, the world we're in, is undergoing lots of changes. There's lots of different forces at play. And some of them I'm not aware of. Some of the ways that the arena is changing is happening without me really understanding it and it's influencing my behavior. So for us, it's like, okay, let's discuss that. Let's break it down so we can understand how we can play a role and how we can stop being manipulated by certain forces. So yeah, we need to understand our arena and how it's changing over time so that we can actually influence and participate and play a role in the way our arena works. Yes. And you raise a really interesting point, which just adds another layer of complexity to this. It was about the speed of change that's happened in the last, I think we've all witnessed it in the last five or 10 years, but even if you go back the last 50 years, the speed of change and the arenas that different generations have been brought up in means that the different age groups that exist in the world now, you know, the young generation who, who've been brought up as digital natives will have a very different understanding and felt perception of what the arena is versus the older generation. I often talk to my father, who's now just in his 80s, and his perspective of what's going on, talking to uh, someone in, a, in their teens, they both see the same things, but have a completely different understanding of what's going on in the arena and a, a different set of thoughts about what is wrong and what should be different. So the different generations, because the change is so rapid, have been brought up in different eras and different arenas. So, so there's a multi-perspectival view of this fr from across the generations, which uh, is also something to note, but uh, also be aware of that there isn't a common view across the generations about what's going on and what's good, what's bad, and what, what we should be doing about it. The thing is that the arena, in one respect, has evolved over time. And I think one of the things that we were talking about in our previous conversations is the way someone might think about the industrial worldview, post-industrial revolution, um, growing up in a world where the worldview is extremely mechanized. We were looking at things in terms of the material world and how much you could extract from the world. And we're kind of finding ourselves in a completely different arena today that has changed from this industrial way of thinking into a more, we still don't really have a way of defining the, the arena that we're now in, but it's certainly not just the industrial way of thinking. People are describing it more as if it's an information age. And the way that we live and the way that we behave is influenced by a new arena now, a new place that we can we can play and the rules are different. And one of the things that I was thinking about with this is if we think about industrial thinking to today's type of thinking, what have been all of the forces in play that have changed how we think and why? Because for me, something that I find really interesting is this idea that as we've moved from different phases in civilization, we have constantly extracted ourselves out of our arena into a new one. So when we went into the industrial age and into the industrial revolution, our kind of worldview is we want to extract ourselves from nature. We want to take ourselves out of this arena and we want to build our own arena. We want to control nature. We don't want to suffer the, the ill consequences of nature. We want to master nature. That was kind of the predominant worldview at the time. And now all of a sudden it seems like we're building a new arena digitally and we're extracting ourselves out of industrial age thinking into this kind of 
digital age. And of course, there's good things about that, but there's also bad things about that. There's the part where people are escaping online and putting their heart and soul into the ephemeral, into digital products. But then there's obviously loads of brilliant things that come from this new arena, loads of new opportunities. So it's just, for me, it's like, how do we come to grips with this change of the arena? And why is it happening? Fantastic question. Fantastic question. Well, I've been doing some some listening, some reading, some thinking, and it feels like a better way to try and understand what this change is and how it is affecting us is in part found by going a little bit further back in our, our history to understand how did we live before industrialization? Because if you look at the historians and what they write about this, you know, what, one of the things that's differentiated human beings from any other creature on earth is obviously our cognitive skills, our ability to just not react to what's happening around us, but the ability to step back to abstract our thinking and think about what we're doing rather than just doing it. And this has led to our ability to make tools. We've, you know, human tool making, there's a long history of how humans have invented tools to increase their power to do things in the world. And that's helped humans to repopulate around the world in lots of different environments that we were never evolved to deal with. So we've, in some ways, transcended our environment by creating tools to allow us to inhabit other parts of nature, whether it's the Eskimos in the Arctic or nomads were wandering across the desert. These were very different from the sort of fertile plains of Africa that we, we may well have originated from. And our technologies have allowed us to move away from tribal to more agrarian communities and start to build and depend upon each other in new ways. We've created arenas that enable us to sustain and thrive in different contexts. And this has happened for many, many thousands of years and and centuries. What's interesting about the industrial age is that there was a very different, almost a paradigm shift in the arenas that we were creating. And it's very interesting, I was listening to some discussions around Adam Smith, who's often seen as the sort of godfather of economics. And most people don't realise that Adam Smith was also a philosopher in his time. And he wrote some very influential works before his Wealth of Nations came out. The Theory of Modern Sentiments, I think, was the important one before that. And he really looked at what drives us. Yes, we are concerned about our own survival and our own well-being, and there is a inherent looking out for oneself that comes with survival. And you might see that in Maslow's hierarchy, that, you know, that the most important things that we attend to are at first our own survival. But then once our sort of safety and physiological needs are met, we can look outwards to other concerns. And he noted that we are also very concerned and have interests in others. We have sympathy, empathy with others who are important to us, whether it's in our family and our communities. And we often, before the Industrial Revolution, would make things which we would use ourselves but would share with others or barter and trade with others. And there was something really empowering 
and ennobling in being able to make something that others would value. And you could see the value they got from it. You could be proud of what you did. And there was an age in which what we built and what we traded and bartered with each other meant something. We were nourishing ourselves and our communities. We were creating some things that were good for ourselves and for others. And what came along with the Industrial Revolution was a sense that through the creation of you know, steam and machines and engines, the ability to undertake labor in a mechanical way that allowed us to build things on a mass scale that we could never do before. And this idea that Adam Smith came out with a division of labor, which is by creating factories where we can allocate tasks to people to do and fulfill, we could more efficiently and effectively make things. So the creation of the Industrial Revolution was really pulling people whole scale out of communities, out of the land, into the cities where these new factories were built, in which people found themselves working inside, a lot of people inside these factories, undertaking quite repetitive tasks, often in very difficult situations, introduced this notion of the owner and the worker in a much more felt sense and created a culture in which people moved into the cities and often were faced with large degrees of poverty, because the owners had a lot of power over wages, often a lot of squalor. And this represented the beginnings of a very different arena that society found itself in, the beginning of the industrial age, if you like, the beginnings of a truly capitalist era, where life and your life as an agent was redefined by the work that you did, which took you into context that then shaped the very life that you experienced. And this kind of industrialization was the forerunner for the last couple of centuries, where we've seen the rise and rise of the power of organizations, institutions. They obviously challenged the aristocracy. They've obtained more power. And we now see that that power has infected the very body politic and society of how we live. Now, economics has risen almost, well, arguably to the primary point in how we see the world, what becomes important in how we shape the institutions that form the arena and how we even shape our own lives. And this is, I think, really important to understanding what is the underlying philosophy that sits within this agent arena. We sit in an arena that has at its core, and we see this in politics at the moment, the economy and GDP is the most important thing. Certainly since Hayek appeared on the scene and espoused the theories that Thatcher and others took on board, maximizing shareholder value became the most important thing. What we've seen is economics and financialization not only driving what's important for the government, i.e. GDP comes first and things could be sacrificed if, if it's not driving GDP, but the institutions that have born out of that philosophy have been maximizing their profits if they're private sector or increasingly being run by spreadsheet, even if they're uh, public sector. And the metricization of life in all its forms <laughs> has been absorbed into our very sense of what it is to live. We live within a world that holds up 
the economics and the financialization of almost every aspect of life as being the governing philosophy. So when we think about what it is to be in the arena of today, what we've inherited is a institutional framework that looks at efficiency, looks at profit maximization and performance that then uses, as we talked about in the last session, I think, the language of marketing to try and convince us that we need to change and buy things that then can create our own identity to a point where who we are, what we hold important, is largely shaped by the messages coming out of the system. And so as we move now to this digital age, what's really interesting is what is the governing logic that underpins the agent-arena relationship? Do we continue to have this financialized, driven way of thinking about what's important in life? Because the new digital tools, as we explored last time, give the arena much more power and sophistication in order to drive that philosophy ever deeper into our society. And we talked last time about the information ecology, especially with regards to social media and the Silicon Valley platforms being wholly driven by models that maximize uh, return that they can make from selling our profile and understanding our psychology and therefore curating experiences that fit an economic model of extraction. That shapes in turn how we see ourselves in the world. So what we've got in digitization, I think, is a a really important moment in human history about how do we think about what the good life is How do we bring a greater awareness around a greater number of people to really reflect deeply about what is it to live well? What is it to have my own independence, my own autonomy, my own ability to take a step back and see what's really important to me and those that I care about and the world writ large, such that we can shift, if you like, the source code of the arena (laughs) in such a way that it opens a space for us to take all the benefits that the modern world has given us and use those as tools to fully express ourselves, to fully live to our greater potential over and beyond that which financialization lens makes important. That's not to say that money isn't important. We know it is, but there is, I think, a sense in history now that we're reaching for something that's more than money, that's more than finance-driven. And we need our arena and ourselves to be coupled in ways that are generative of something newer and better and more beautiful. Yeah, because I think that the point that we want to emphasize is that the arena and the agent, i.e. ourselves and our environment, are co-evolving. And whatever arena we are put into is going to influence us in ways we can't even imagine. And one of the things that's really interesting about the industrial age is not just what we've gained, but actually actually what we've lost and you're talking about the metricization which is a brilliant word turning everything into numbers everything into metrics and engaging things that way it's been applied so profoundly that even if you think about schooling and education the way that education is done and the way that we are able to understand how effective a teacher is is based on grading it's based on being able to regurgitate facts and mark who has the best memory 
because at scale, that is the easiest way to measure the effectiveness of teaching and how successful a pupil might be. But what you miss from that and what's completely sidelined by the metrics is what was that teacher's ability to raise the self-esteem of certain pupils? Because I remember in the last episode, we were talking about why self-esteem is so important. And again, just to recap on self-esteem, it's not the idea of just telling everyone that they're great and giving them out awards. It's making them feel like they can be effective in the world. There's no way you can possibly measure that right now through metrics. And that system has been generated by an industrial way of thinking. And if you think back to your own school experience, you think about the nice, neat little rows that you probably had to sit in all facing the front or looking at the teacher. Perhaps you had a bell that rang for break. If you start thinking about your school experience and thinking about what your idea of a factory is, let's say, there's probably going to be quite a few similarities between the two. And what I wanted to say about what was lost, this is an example of something that was lost, right? This idea of the way that we should be thinking about a person holistically. And there's a really interesting thing that I wanted to bring up that you said that made me think Mm. of something really important, but also kind of nerdy, which is you were saying about in the Industrial Revolution, it took people out of the land and into the factories and, and kind of took people away from one arena into another. Yes. And I am a big fan of Tolkien. I really enjoy all of his stuff. And I was watching a documentary and it was talking about the reason why he decided to write Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. And what was interesting is he said that there were no real fables and myths that England had to offer. And he said that whether it was him or his son in the interview, they were saying that the reason why the UK and England didn't have myths was for two primary reasons one was the invasion of the french in 1066 which basically distorted our language and culture and changed everything but the second thing was the industrial revolution and it took the kids and the families and put them in the factories so that the the mums and the people that would tell the stories of our of our myths and our culture were no longer doing that so one of the primary drivers that tolkien had to write Lord of the Rings, drawing from Nordic mythology and loads of other sources outside of the UK was to give England its own mythology, to give it its own sense of story, its own sense of identity. And I think that that really encapsulates one thing that was lost from industrial thinking, but also presents a really interesting reaction and pathway to responding to that kind of, that meaning that was stripped out of our collective experience so i just wanted to bring that up because when you said that i was like yeah that yeah. that reminds me of tolkien well that's such a a brilliant point that you make there and it's interesting to look back at the history of schooling i think it was in the late 19th century when public schooling was made part of the offer of the state to a wider constituency and one of the interesting reasons that more public schooling was made available was the sense that in the factories, people were too autonomous. They were too liable to talk, be distracted. They weren't disciplined enough to man the machines and undertake the repetitive tasks as efficiency as the division of labor required you to do. So schooling was introduced to ensure that the youth were fully prepared for the work that they were to undertake in factories. So the whole idea of having fixed lessons and school bells that ring at the end of lessons was 
to indoctrinate, if you like, the children to the idea of time, fixed time, of bells ringing, you change this and now you're doing this, to prepare people for being willing and active participants in, in the industrial world. So it's, it's very interesting we looking back at our modern education, well, our education system was born out of preparing workers for the industrial factories that existed at the time. And we haven't really, in truth, moved on an awful lot from that model. But what's becoming, I think, very clear, as we talked about in some of our previous conversations, is the world of the future isn't going to be the work in a factory. It's not preparing children to wander into jobs that are repetitive or, in fact, even a job for life. We're in a world now which is evolving in very complex and fast ways. The need to reinvent yourself many times throughout your your life. The idea of a career for life is diminishing. So what are the skills and capabilities that people need to thrive in the much more uncertain world that we have now? It's less about trying to get people to complete predetermined tests and exams because there's a sense in which the education system is being gamed like you can prepare people to take tests or you can teach them true knowledge of how to critically think and what's increasingly becoming aware there's very different forms of teaching and training and education and therefore I think you know one of the things that we as a society need to rethink and think more deeply is this question about what is education for? And what do we even mean by education? What are the skills, capabilities, and competencies that are going to be important for a person coming out into a world that's uh, much more uncertain, unsure, where they'll need to reinvent themselves, find themselves, and be more creative in how they think about their own life and what they actually do in any form of work? And this comes back to your other point, which is, I think, Tolkien's reaction to a world that was increasingly seen as mechanized through the Industrial Revolution. We could mechanize the production through Newtonian science. We could understand how everything fit together. The world as a giant machine was very much the paradigm, and I think, in which increasingly the world was seen. And I think a lot of people like Tolkien and others recognize that what it is to be a human, what it is to experience life, what it is to feel alive, to participate in life was not a rational automaton. You have feelings, you have love, you have hope, you have fears, you have dreams, you have aspirations. And increasingly, that element of the human psyche, the human condition, we're being conditioned out of people. So, to reconnect, as they call, phenomenologically. What does it feel like to to love, to hope, to think of life as an adventure? There's so much richness in exploring that terrain that was very much part of our history, our history of stories and mythologies that got lost during that time, but recaptures the human imagination that re-describes and resurfaces the human spirit. There was a sort of a, a hunger for that reconnection with the felt sense of what it is to be a human being and, and engage in that tremendous, scary, but exciting journey of life. And bringing that piece back to the equation, say life is not just about working and things, it's about 
feeling and exploring and having adventures and aspiring and challenging yourself in the journey and, and adventure of life. And was, I think, a growing recognition that this, you know, almost what the arts and humanities bring to us as an understanding of ourselves and what science has shown us about how elements of the world work need to be recombined and refused together into a more common understanding and celebration of what it is to be human. Absolutely. Oh, man, let me think how to even break this down. Yeah, let's start with the machine aspect of what you were saying about Tolkien. I can even see that reflected in the, the story itself, and especially people that have seen the films. You can really get that sense of the evil that's portrayed is the one that's consuming and destroying nature. So there was definitely that in his work, which I found really interesting. And it's reflected in the story, in the films. And it's always really interesting when a certain story captures the imagination of the public intergenerationally. It survives multiple arenas. And there's something about Lord of the Rings that has something that maybe we are lacking and missing in our world and in society. So that's why even if you perhaps are listening to this and you don't find Lord of the Rings interesting on a personal level, if you can look and say, well, why has that captured the imagination of the public? And why is that so enduring? What is that? I think that's a brilliant question to ask yourself. Then the other thing I wanted to bring up was when you were talking about how the education system has basically conditioned people into factory thinking. It's such an important point because I think if we took that as a microcosm of civilization, as an example of how we are doing things almost automatically now based on the legacies of the past without really thinking through what we are doing. I think that that can be applied to education, to health, to economics, to so many parts of our society and of civilization that it's worth looking individually at these different components and saying, well, how does that apply to different sectors of our society, of our arena? And conditioning people to be brought up into a industrial world is so different to thinking, how do we prepare people now, like you said, for a world that is radically different, a new arena? And I think personally, when you were talking about that and, and saying, how can that be possible? The one thing that I was thinking is that I wish education in general was not about going to a single place where you feel like you can learn in order to achieve a certain grade or a piece of paper. It's more like we want education to be instilled into people that a love of learning is required throughout life. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest things to teach any child or any human being is to have a real passion for learning for learning's sake, how to learn effectively, how to really dig into the things that you find interesting. Because in an uncertain world where you might not have a career for life and things are always changing, and they're always going to be complex. One of the biggest advantages that you can have as a person in that arena is to learn and to learn effectively and to learn quickly. So I think that that was just one key takeaway that I would say personally from my experience is saying, okay, if the education system was to be preparing a new generation, what's one of the key tenants? And for me, other than critical thinking, which we've already discussed on a previous episode, I think instilling the love of learning should be fundamental. Yes, I 100% agree with what you just said there. The, the, the love of learning, I would add to that also that quite a lot of schooling squashes creativity and play out of kids. They, they're incredibly creative when you watch them play games when they're two, three, four, five-year-olds. That The way they can 
spin up and imagine worlds and stories. There's an amazing amount of creativity and imagination. And one of the effects of industrial-driven education is to always drum that out of kids so they have to sit there as passive recipients to knowledge that's injected into their head so they can regurgitate it in an exam and get in a grade. What you're doing, as you say, is removing the capacity for critical thinking to explore and play with ideas but this idea of playing in imagination, I think, is going to be part and parcel of what people need uh, for, for a life of continual reinvention. And you're absolutely right to bring up the, the fact that if we take a step back and think education isn't just something that happens at school or happens at university, it should be something that happens continually. Because the world that we're living in is changing all the time, we need to change with it. And as we grow older and wiser, hopefully we can see things in new ways. We can recognize more of what we bring to the party and what we can do with that. So to learn, to develop, to continually seek out the possibility for the growth of yourself through knowledge, through wisdom, through engagement with new ideas and with new practices – I think is a, a lifelong thing. I might be a little bit geeky, but I do have a little thing that I try and hold myself to, which is when I put my head on my pillow each night, I always want to go up to bed a little bit wiser than when I woke up in the morning. So what have I learned that's new today that I didn't know when I woke up in the morning? And I think that that sort of instinct orientation to continual learning, I think needs to be part of how we think about education. Education for people in life. So new forms of education that's available to people, I think, needs to be part of how we think about society of the future. But just coming back on your point about Tolkien, and I think it was a really interesting link between the time that Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings and the time just after the First World War. Because the First World War was really one of the first times that industrial thinking had been applied to war. How do we mechanize war? So the first tanks, the Gatling guns and the automated weaponry and the mass of soldiers that were sent in mechanized infantry to fight with others. If you look at Tolkien and some of the parts of the story which have the whole armies of orcs, if you like, in some ways that was almost a metaphor for the mechanization of conflict and of evil that comes with industrial thinking. And this is a really interesting point, I think. What the Industrial Revolution did was allow us to build things at a scale never before possible. And in those institutions and the things that they produce and the things they do, new sources of power. How do we use that power? To what aim do we point that power? And so I think part of Tolkien's story is uh, as we increase and mechanize and augment and develop institutional forms of power, how do we ensure we put that to good use? Where is the human? Where is the human story that we can bend these new powers in support of? And I think there's something really profound and interesting about how we must be always aware that the arena doesn't have its own organizing logic that takes us further and further away from the agents that comprise it. Because I think one of the features of the modern age from the industrial age onwards 
is that institutions have become more and more powerful and in having their own organizing logic, as we talked about, whether it's power or money, can find themselves drifting away from the interests of the agents, i.e. us, the population, and, and the commons that we inhabit. So reconnecting, recoupling those in mutually beneficial ways is something always to be aware of. And I think art, storytelling, films are interesting ways to play with what it is to be human and what it is to have power and how those couple together in the most beneficial way for us as humans. And I hope that art continues to play a, an important role in helping us to reflect metaphorically on where we are, not just scientifically. We have about four different conversational threads open right now. And yes. I kind of want to dive into all of them. For me, when you were talking about the idea of mechanized warfare and the representation of the orcs and how that can be perceived. I feel like it can also tell a story about maybe going and venturing into this new arena. It's like, well, what are we building and why are we building it? And let's not be too relaxed about what we're doing here because in a way, the arena that we're shaping now and the arena we're building now can have just the same effects as the industrial way of thinking, especially if we're doing it without consciously going into it and being aware of that. If we build technology that is all encompassing it's mass surveillance are we not just creating the all-seeing eye of sauron for example <laughs> this is where my brain was going when you were telling me these things there is a real good reason why we need to be having these conversations now as the arena is, is shape-shifting and one of the reasons is if we can't go into it with a real understanding of the consequences of our actions we don't know what we could create and i think that although we've been bashing a lot of the industrial ways of thinking Obviously, this goes without saying, a lot of things came from that, which were extremely valuable and extremely good for the world. But there were just so many unintended consequences of industrial thinking that weren't thought through enough. So I think that when we're having these conversations, and for you that's listening to this conversation, for us, we just want to start considering these things so we don't sleepwalk into an arena that we really don't want to be in. So that's one thread. I just wanted to bring that up. The second thread I wanted to jump into, although now I'm going back and forth a bit, is when you were talking about play yes. and, and you were saying, you know, kids need to play. I think, and I think this has been scientifically proven, or at least it's scientifically credible now, that play is one of the fundamental ways that we learn. You can't separate play from learning. So when we had the kind of industrial way of being educated and they stripped play out of that, we lost a certain type of knowledge that we need to regain. And learning to learn and loving to learn has to reimagine that with the idea of being playful. The people that are able to learn the most effectively incorporate playfulness into that. And you can think about that as something as simple as the trend in the digital world of gamification. Hmm. So gamifying how you learn a language. You can think of things like Duolingo or all of these learning apps. There is a way that our brains work that learning and playing are so interwoven that they're inseparable. And the thing you said every day, I want to put my head on the pillow and think, well, what have I learned today? What is something new that I can say that I've discovered with my day? And it's kind of bringing that sense of adventure back into mm. your life. And I think education, when we even say the word education, it's got so many connotations to schooling and being in a building and attaining 
again, a piece of material. Again, it's all about this industrial way of thinking. I want to gain an object to prove that I've done this. Mm-hmm. For all of us, we need to think about education as something that is just incorporated into our lives. We should be learning through our work. We should be learning through our relationships. I think that that part of learning is is so important that we can break out of these buildings and say, actually, I want to incorporate a way of learning into my life. And for those of us that have gone through our schooling period and have been indoctrinated into that, I think it's important for us to take a step back and almost think, how can we deprogram ourselves from the idea that once you've learned something and you've received a certificate or someone said, good job, well done, you've you've regurgitated this fact. How do we deprogram ourselves to say, actually, okay, I've learned this, but now I want to move on and learn this. And I, I want to keep that curiosity and that sense of wonder in my life. So that was just all of my thoughts in a massive <laughs> big bang to you. Wow. <laughs> this is why dialogue works so well. It, you've sparked so many thoughts in my mind. One that I wanted to just explore a little bit is one of the threads you mentioned was this idea of play. And what I wanted to dwell on just for a little bit is how play is linked to imagination and how imagination brings forth something beyond that which is to what could be. So imagination opens up a space where we can transcend what we see around us and reimagine something different. And whether it's kids playing cowboys and Indians or Harry Potter or whatever, to adopt a role to play with someone else is to take yourself out of yourself and imagine that you're holding another perspective of someone else and then go into an adventure with what that new perspective brings. So it's an act of imagination, act of creativity, but also in the form of play, you're encountering another in that creativity and finding new ways to co-explore a space together in the form of play. And this is such a fundamental thing that you see everywhere. You look at animals. In the animal kingdom, cubs play, little creatures play. And it's really important because it not only teaches you different ways of thinking and acting, but it also is exploring, as I think you were hinting to, the ability to engage with others in co-creative ways, which obviously, as you get older, has a, a deeper meaning. And the ability to play with others, not to beat them and destroy them, (laughs) because then you become a play partner that others don't want to play with, but to be able to, in the course of play, allow others some possibility of winning, to fair play, of noble play. And, And I think Jean Piaget went on to say that it's kids who get invited back to play multiple games you're not just the winner of one game, but you're someone who's invited to play multiple games. That's the aspiration you'd want for your child, because essentially people will like you as a social actor. They enjoy your presence and what you can participate and create with. And imagination and creativity, the ability to transcend yourself, becomes really important when we think about the world that we're in, as we've been talking about, if it is going to change as much as we think it is going to, then the ability not just to stick and hold on to what you've got and who you are, but the ability in the context you find yourself, the emerging arena, to imagine what could be, what could you be, to play with those ideas, to inhabit different perspectives, to 
open up a space which you can grow into. This need for play, imagination and creativity, I think, uh, are going to be incredibly important. And just lastly, finishing off on that, the ability to deal with each other and have respect that we may have different perspectives or disagreements, but not to fall into conflict, but to be able to, as we're having now, dialogue through disputes, to be able to create and use imagination and and a form of play, although it's more serious, to explore different ideas, to understand the perspective of the other is an act of creation and imagination of itself. What is the signal and the noise coming from the other side that I may incorporate into my own thinking and acknowledge and recognize? So opening up that space, if you like, for your intelligence and your perspective seeking to see a new place to play with other ideas, <laughs> to then come back and have an opinion yourself that's acknowledged and, and absorbed other perspectives. I think it's another notion of play, the play with ideas. And so playing and creativity and imagination, I think are really important skills and competences that we need to cultivate uh, more widely as part of what we were saying earlier in both the education and also it's root into arts because we know through storytelling and mythology and increasingly some amazing TV series, we're able to mine more deeply into some of these more profound questions and use drama and creative art forms to surface and play with these ideas for us to observe and learn from them. (laughs) And this may be a, a really powerful additional way of making sense of the world rather than just looking for facts and rational arguments about what is and what should be. I think we could do multiple individual episodes on so many of these different themes. It would be really great to talk about mythology and Mm -hmm. storytelling and the hero's journey and just break that down and understand why that's relevant to us today. I think also, obviously, looking at education in a separate episode, just in and of itself, just looking into what's going on, what could the future of education be like, that would be fascinating and so many other things that have just come up in this conversation we'll need to deep dive into and and really just explore that space because I think where we started this kind of tangent really on, on exploring all of these things was saying actually there have been lots of things that have been lost from the industrial way of thinking now that we're entering into this new arena we're already I guess subconsciously or unconsciously as a society starting to think, hey, we're missing something here. We need to bring these things back. And we've just indicated a few parts, maybe the ways of being, like being playful, telling stories, uh, reconnecting with things that go beyond just efficiency. We've been exploring what was lost. And I think we're going to go through a similar phase again, or we are rather going through a similar phase again as we transition from one arena into a new arena and even the word transition doesn't sit quite right with me on this it's more like an evolution from an industrial way of thinking into whatever this next phase might be so I think it'd be really great to explore with you what do we think is going on with this shift from the industrial into the information age let's say just to give it a name yeah I I agree I made an emphasis on economics and financialization, not because I'm a geek in that way, but because from the thinking and the reading and the listening and the talking I've done, it's become increasingly clear to me, the more I think deeply about that, the way to which that philosophy, that orientation, that prioritization of 
metricizing things and counting things and economics and what can we afford to do and what can't we afford to do has inadvertently <laughs> constrained the conversation, the space for us to explore what really matters, what gives life its full color, what allows us to blossom and find ourselves. Someone said economics is too important to be left to economists because what it misses out is the fact that the human life and the human story is snarled up in economics. It's creating an if sharply and powerfully influencing the principles by which the arena is thinking and acting and making decisions. And we need the human subject, the human story, what allows us to thrive individually and collectively to be part of the conversation that economics acknowledges and becomes in service of. If anyone listening to this is an economics geek, they would know that Keynes, back in the day in the 40s, 50s, was a very influential economist. And he had an idea that if we could arrange our institutions to be able to provide more efficient, effective production of services, that we would release humankind from the tyranny of having to spend so much time working to free up time for us to realize ourselves and our, and our potential, that creativity and play and exploration and self-transcendence, these would all become possible because of the fruits of an economic system and a productive system that could mean that we are released from that toil of work. We now find ourselves in a form of economics that has no vision for the humanity that lives within that economics. It's just economics for economics sake. So we've lost, what are we doing this for? What are we trying to build by growing GDP and increasing wealth? What is the story at the end of that that leads us to a better way of being as humanity? The challenge for our age is, do we have an answer to that question? What should it be? And why it's so important is that we don't want to leave economics to the economists. We want the economy to serve us, but we need to be able to have that debate and discussion about who we want to be, the life that we would like to, to live, to have some sense of what that direction is so that we can orientate ourselves and our arena in pursuit of what hopefully will be a better life for the future. But it's up to us to debate, discuss and shape that journey in that direction. It's really interesting for me because that Keynesian vision, whether it's achieved through us thinking about how we want to shape the arena or achieved through the automation of our industries, there will arrive a point potentially in the future where a lot of the things that people are working on today become obsolete. And there is a lot of meaning to be found in putting value into the world and working on worthwhile projects and a lot of dignity to be found in feeling like you're contributing in some way to society through the work that you're doing. And I think that there definitely needs to be some thinking around how can I as a human being add value into society and and achieve things that give me a sense of belonging in the world? What are the things that I can do? Because one of the dangers with like the kind of way of thinking of automating everything and, and arriving at a point where all of a sudden there's not much to do. I think we could even be in danger of removing yet another piece of the puzzle that provides us with meaning. So it's almost mm. like, okay, let's dig into 
Like, like you said, what is the kind of economics that we envisage? What is a way of working? What is a way of being in the world that is fulfilling, meaningful and, and sustains us on this planet? I think that's such a, a brilliant point. And you did say something else that I wanted to bring up. You were saying about this way of seeing everything as metrics really restrains us. And what I was thinking about when you said that is, a, absolutely, I think that's one of the biggest issues throughout society, throughout our arena, because... When it comes to managing systems at scale, large groups of people, large organizations, large projects, metrics are insanely useful. And especially if you look at the way that we've conducted ourselves and, and built the current arena, a lot of that's come through really precise mathematics, really effective science. And obviously that metricization of society has happened because it's been effective and it has provided us with so many different things. But now all of a sudden we are arriving at a point where in this co-evolution of agent and arena, where we're seeing how much it has restrained us. And from this vantage point where we're at today, we're able to look at our past and into our future and say, well, okay, metrics has been one way. Looking at things as numbers, and one of the things I often say is like looking at, at people as numbers on a spreadsheet. That's what a lot of organizations tend to do because it's been the only way really they've had of organizing things at scale we're arriving at a point now where we are realizing just what that has meant for us as individuals and societies and we're starting to to evaluate that so i don't know i just wanted to kind of bring a balance to it. it's like yeah these metrics have been super effective for a reason and because of that we've arrived at a point where we're realizing that we're we're missing certain things yeah there's a critique of metricization, but there's no doubt that the Industrial Revolution and what follows from it has brought us amazing things in the world. And one could look around the world now and, and you know, maybe things are changing now because of COVID, but poverty is reducing around the world. So one could at one level say what industrialization, industrial-based thinking has done has brought the world amazing things that never had before, lifted a lot of people out of poverty, increased the life expectancy. But I think we're starting to realise now it's come at a cost. It's come at a cost to the environment. It's come at a cost to our mental health. It's come now at a cost to our confusion through pollution of the information ecology, the fact that we are seeing cracks in the edifice now, that industrial thinking has got its strengths, but it's also got its weaknesses, and we now need to step up and do more. And I think it is difficult at the institutional level. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to say about metricization, or two things I want to say. One is, I was in a conversation with a, a senior leader who's analysing a hospital in the UK recently, and he said, I think they had over 450 different metrics of which the hospital was measured to. One of the impacts of having that many metrics is that people are optimizing what they do to hit those metrics. And there's a kind of paralysis that can happen there, which means that thinking laterally, being imaginative, how might evolve and create and improve, becomes a threat to the metric. The metric becomes a form of tyranny (laughs) that holds people to account to do the things they need to do to hit the metric. And one of the things that's absolutely amazed the healthcare system about itself is that during this COVID pandemic, 
as many people said, it was sort of six years of digital transformation done in six weeks in many areas where bringing virtual consultation. The idea that we can abandon our metrics for a moment because there's a massively important purpose here, which people are dying. We need to do something about it. So we have a purpose. We have a fire under our backside and we drop the institutional processes and frameworks and metrics that bound us in and trapped us in a kind of institutional thinking and got out and worked with each other to build solutions. Look what creativity can be unleashed if we have a purpose and the freedom from the constraints of metrics. So metrics are good, but their metrics are also a constraint. One person who really brought this home to me is that I, I was sat in a lecture of a professor of bureaucracy. I never knew there was <laughs> a, such a thing, but it was fascinating and insightful because he described a process I think anyone working for an institution would instantly recognize and, and gives rise to the phenomenon we've just been discussing, which is that when any institution or even a startup is formed, usually there's a recognition there is a problem to be solved so that we can collectively come together to solve. The idea is born, the startup is created, or it may be the beginnings of a charity or a public service. The, the people that set that up usually have a deep understanding of the problem they're trying to solve and what is required to orchestrate and pull the pieces together to deliver a solution. Now, as you become successful, that team can no longer hold all the volume of work that needs to be done. So you start to hire people, you do division of labor, you have to hire people who are going to do the operations and the finance and the marketing and the sales. And as the institution or the organization gets successful, they need to hire in more people. So you have departments and sub-departments and sub-sub-departments. And the people being brought in have no clear picture of the total purpose of what that organization is. They now see a fractal piece of what is important. And as those departments get set up, how is work organized? It's usually we're there to deliver a particular function. We'll set up some forms or some process by which we accept work. And then there's a process by which work is ticked off and handed off. So what happens is that you start to get bureaucracy coming in to manage the work that sits within the silos that you've just created. And as the organization gets older and new people get hired in to take those roles. They no longer have any knowledge of what the organization was there to do. They're brought in to manage this silo with this set of metrics that manage performance. And the internal politics or management of volumes of work, you can dial up or dial down the bureaucratic forms of what you accept and what you pass on. So the metrics become the politics, which become the mini arena that people inhabit and police. And what he described is that bureaucracy spreads like a fungus throughout an organization. It's a natural force of nature that bureaucracy will spin up inside an organization around these sub-departments and who can make decisions and who can change anything. And this orientation to fixing and locking down and being accountable to metrics ends up creating a sclerotic institution that can often find itself divorced from the very purpose it was set up and for the constituents it's meant to serve. And it's almost like an organic process of nature that you create a, a bureaucratic monstrosity policed by metrics and internal politics that can no longer function or move or co-evolve 
with the constituents and, and the value it was meant to create. And therefore, there's this kind of institutional drift that occurs. It, there's this self-justifying narrative about hitting its own metrics that's replaced. What the hell are we here for? We're here because we create value for a constituency in the world. That understanding is lost, and many institutions find themselves just self-serving in performance and chasing of their own internal metrics. And in some ways, it's an evolutionary process that isn't anyone's individual fault. It's how institutions can become very locked and very rigid and very internally focused. So it's a challenge for leaders out there to say, why does our organization even exist? Do we truly understand why we're here? What is the problem or the opportunity we're looking to serve? How well are we tuned in to understanding that? Because that will evolve over time. And how do we ensure our institution doesn't get trapped in its own bureaucracy that can act as a concerted whole, as an entirety, as a system that's able to adapt and evolve to continue to create value for individuals and the wider commons, the society in which we operate? And how do we mobilize our internal people to not get trapped in this internal bureaucracy? And just one final point to leave you on there. I was talking to the CEO of Metrobank, one of these new banks that formed in the UK high street, one of the first banks to, to appear on the high street for over 100 years. And they wanted their customer experience to be the most distinguishing feature like how do we make sure that we don't go like all the other UK banks which have become very bureaucratic and and therefore difficult to deal with for consumers and he introduced one really interesting rule which was no stupid rules and it was a, a rule put out an invitation put out to his entire workforce saying if you see any internal rule or piece of bureaucracy that is set up that gets in the way of us delivering fantastic customer experience. You have a right to come straight to me as the CEO and I will hold people accountable as to why is that rule there? And this is a damn good reason that rule's going. And he said it was the best thing I ever did. It was like shining sunlight into the organization to sort of kill off the propensity of creating internal bureaucracy that then bit by bit, creates an organization to become inward focusing, rigid, unable to respond and lose contact with the very constituency that it was there to set up and serve in the best possible way. I feel like there is a natural progression, like you've outlined, when it comes to companies growing. It's really hard to maintain a clear vision, a clear purpose and a clear focus company wide. But I think that this can also be applied to any group of people that are trying to achieve a goal together. So don't just think startup or a large organization. It can just be wherever people are trying to self-organize or organize in groups. And I think it's partly down to the fact that to transmit information to a large amount of people, things are always getting lost. And I think that metrics come up as probably one of the most easy ways for large groups of people to disseminate and share and measure and judge and move forwards with information. So it almost feels like it's inbuilt into us. The larger the groups are, the more we feel like, okay, well, we need to transmit information and pass down information from the center of our organization or our group to other components of it. And along the way, we're going to lose something because we are organizing ourselves with metrics. So when we were talking earlier about how metrics can restrict and restrain 
us as individuals, it also works in the same way within organizations. There's always going to be something lost when you have to use metrics in order to organize. But it almost feels in the arena that we're currently in, it's one of the most readily accessible ways to organize and manage. And everyone can talk about metrics. They can be measured. We can share them. It it sounds kind of simple to do. But what you've just explained, that way that it works almost as a a fungus throughout the organization, which eventually just makes the company rigid, is ultimately the end point of metricization, of trying to organize things from a center going outwards to the end points of the company or the group. One of the things that I've thought about when it comes to this is the effect of having an ethos and values that transcend the current mission and the current purpose of what you're trying to achieve as a group of people that everyone can relate to, everyone can look to as a guiding light when taking certain actions so that if you empower people within an organization or within a collective to look to a set of values, to look to an ethos where they can say, okay, well, given that this is something that we all believe in and that we all value to be something valuable this is how i can act based on these values and i think one of the best books that i've read on this was by a guy called james kerr who wrote a book called legacy and he actually spoke about how the new zealand all blacks the rugby team how they pass on values and why those values are so important to sustaining the effectiveness of a high performance culture intergenerationally throughout the the time of the new zealand all blacks having existed maintaining their success and I think they've been so successful and the book goes on to say because they have these unifying values this ethos this way of acting and behaving that they can draw upon and it's not just passing down metrics and trying to gauge numbers and share that information in that way it's more let's empower the individual to act based upon shared values and I think as you were talking about the CEO of Metrobank and his no stupid rules it's very easy to build upon that as a rule and turn that into a value that can be shared long term beyond just a purpose or an objective yeah we've been talking about industrial thinking and the the, the change now upon us and i think over reliance on metrics is a hangover from this industrial age the idea that our institutions are simply factories of some sort and that if we put the metrics in we can process things through our internal processes and hit the metrics and voila, we have a successful business. First of all, the world isn't like that. It's moving too quickly. So almost making yourself rigid is the opposite of how to evolve in a rapidly changing world. But leaving that aside, too many metrics, well, even the notion of metrics themselves, and they are important. In some ways, you need a form of measurement to to know whether you're moving in the direction you need or whether you're still solvent or not. But metrics run the risk of being gamed how can I hit those metrics? What else could I do? And there's a a really interesting book by a guy by the name of Colin Price called Beyond Performance, where when he was an exec of McKinsey's, did a survey where he asked execs from multiple companies around the world, if your exam question was, how do you maximize this quarter's numbers? What would you do around sales, people, product, operations? And he gave them a set of questions about what you would do if you had to maximize that quarter's numbers. And then he asked them another exam question, said, if your objective was to 
maximize the sustainability of your organization in the long term, sustainability and success, what would you do around sales, marketing, operations, HR? And he compared the answers he got back to those two questions, and they were exact opposite in almost every case. If you're trying to hit your short-term numbers, you will undertake actions, you will see priorities that will do what is necessary to hit that metric. And as well as pursuing hitting that metric, you also deprioritize other things you would have done in order that you can invest your time to hit that metric. And most of the things that people deprioritize is working with people in other departments, collaboration, checking things, going and learning more about stuff, because that's wasted time, which you could be investing in hitting the metric. So metrics can cause gaming. It can cause people to even self-harm their own organization, especially when it comes to short-term quarterly performance. So you have to use them with care. Also, metrics have this legacy that somehow the center can control everything. If we just put the metrics in and manage everyone underneath us, then our organization or institution will work like a giant factory and we can get everything done perfectly. But what we're seeing in a much more fluid, adaptive world that is working more like an ecosystem, an ecology, rather than it is a factory, is that the people who can see what's really happening are the people on the front line, the people who are actually dealing with reality, not the ones who have abstracted through several layers of reporting at the, at the top. So as the world becomes more complex, as things change more rapidly, and the knowledge of what's really going on is to be found in people at the front lines in organization, there is a need to distribute decision-making and power because you need to trust that people know what need to be done in local areas. And there's no way people at the center could ever have that knowledge or be informed quickly enough to be able to make all of those decisions. So what that calls for then is exactly what you're saying. You're moving away towards principles that guide behavior, not metrics that measure outcome. Metrics can be gained. You can apply all sorts of really uncomfortable and nasty principles to hit the metrics, like screwing each other or lying or hiding things. But the principles and values by which we operate, what do we hold important and how do we go about it? And over and above that needs to be a shared purpose of what are we all here for that transcends my individual job. It gives me a North Star of what I'm doing and what it contributes to, but it also lays out the fact that we, the collective, we in this institution are collectively here to try and achieve this. And the this, the purpose, is not, which is also interesting to unpack a little bit, because that's the answer to whether you're achieving that purpose or not, is in part defined by what you do. But your purpose is that you're doing something outside of the institution. You're contributing something to the world, possibly to customers or to citizens. So how have you achieved your purpose? Are you achieving your purpose? Are the things you're doing the right things even? It requires a curiosity, a kind of reaching out of the organization into the constituency that you're looking to serve to say, what is the problems that we're trying to solve or the opportunities we're trying to realize how how is that manifested and is what we're doing enabling that and making that possible these are 
metrics or insights that exist outside the organization in the world of customers or in the world of citizens or in the world of patients, understanding how that value is created is an understanding and orientation that is the gold that needs to be brought back to the institution so it knows that what it's collectively doing is indeed having the desired impact in the world. And this curiosity and sensitivity requires an organization to work more like a biological entity. It's working as a complex system that's co-evolving itself to maximize the way that it can achieve value and deliver value for the constituencies it serves. And what it really does is paint a picture that's a million miles away from this highly siloed, fragmented, 300, 400 metrics, individual departments all doing their own thing, which is an offshoot of the industrial age. Some of the interesting complexity theorists are saying many of the things out there in the arena, in society, that we're trying to get a grip on and solve or provide value to are quite complex. There are multiple forces at play that shape what that opportunity space is and how we might as an institution engage with that. So we need to learn from complexity science. Uh, And one of the interesting things there is that if you take this industrial model and you just add more and more sub-departments to try and provide ever more specialization, you're adding bits of complexity onto your organization to try and get a better grip on the problem in the outside world. What you're doing is just growing the internal complexity of your organization. You're creating more metrics, more processes, more scleroticism. What you need to do is act more like a, a biological system that can sense, understand, and evolve itself as a system towards the challenges that it face. Using guidelines and principles and distributed decision-making are the new tools in which to be able to do that not the over-metricization and bureaucracy of the past. And I think we can see this industrial thinking also in the way that governments are focusing on metrics now with the pandemic and emphasizing certain metrics over others and maybe not incorporating multiple different perspectives simultaneously. So a less industrial way of thinking about the situation would be to incorporate okay what are going to be the psychological effects on young children if they only see adults with masks on in public what are going to be the effects of an economic recession rather than saying okay we have this one metric which is the amount of cases that we have to focus on and everything else kind of goes out the window and that for me is like an overemphasis on one metric rather than trying to look at the thing holistically i I absolutely agree and what we're just talking about those more systems thinking more seeing it as a complex problem of multiple factors and if you take a look at the pandemic, yes, it's a, it was a health crisis. COVID infections were definitely causing severe illness and death on a significant scale that warranted a response. But as you rightly point out, the second order effects of locking everyone down was that you're going to whack people's individual finances and the economy writ large. And that's sort of playing out now with the massive job losses and firms in some significant difficulty. But then that itself creates third order effects, which is you start to get a sort of socio-political crisis where people are struggling to survive. People are supremely anxious about what the hell's going on. 
and it's being politicized for good and bad. What's interesting in the socio-political side is a third order effect for good is that we're seeing lots of mobilization of local communities to help each other, knowing that the traditional institutions of the private and public sector haven't got the capacity or capability or even ability to, to support it. We need to support each other in this interesting cultivation of less individualistic thinking and more collective thinking, which could be a goodness that comes out of this. But then there's a fourth order effect, which is the existential crisis. Like, who am I? What the hell is going on? Can I even trust the world anymore? Is the world going to hell in a handbasket? Are all our politicians corrupt? The whole system is rotten? Blah, blah, blah. So as we think about how people experience the pandemic, it will have multiple factors. There's a health factor, there's a financial factor, there's a social factor, there's what the hell is going on factor, there's how do I support my distant family, what happens to my quality of life. So a government has really got to see that picture and hold all of that if it's going to be able to carry its people through this. And the the risk of, and it's quite interesting to observe, the risk when a government doesn't quite understand the full complexity of what's called for and the multi-perspectival view it needs to have to hold multiple factors and hold them in balance, because it's going to need to take action on multiple fronts that collectively can represent the best response to this. Industrial thinking played out in government policy is, let's create a metric, (laughs) a metric that reduces this multi-dimensional complexity into a single one or two things. So it's an act of reductionism. And then we can hold that metric out there and attempt to hit it, thereby looking like we're successful, but at the same time missing out on all the other aspects that people need support on. What's unfortunate about the UK government's approach is that it's held out those metrics as the key metrics from which it orientates its response and then fails to hit them anyway. So not as it not delivering to the wider needs of people through not having a systemic understanding of how this pandemic is affecting people in their second, third, fourth order consequences, but it's also failed to hit its own metrics. The collective result of that process will see unfold, but it seems to be that people are increasingly feeling the disconnection and the powerlessness of our politicians to effectively govern in our own interests. And this could have quite significant impacts of trust in politics as we move forward. I think one of the real telltale signs of a complex adaptive system is its ability to sense and respond to change. And I think the way that things are playing out now is that we're feeling like we're not sensing and responding to elements that change. And I think that's one of the dangerous ways that metrics play out when you pick one or two and you stick to them in this kind of one dimensional fashion in any situation, doesn't have to be just a pandemic is when you overemphasize and focus in a one dimensional fashion, you, you lose the ability to navigate complexity and uncertainty. And that's just a really important takeaway in general. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, the things that we need to think about when we're shifting from this industrial legacy way of thinking to this new space. And if you look at the organizations, the people, the ways of being that are going to be most effective in this kind of uncertain world, it's going to be the ones that are able to sense and respond to change the fastest. So let me break that down so it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So 
we were talking about education and learning to love to learn or learning even to learn. What are we really saying there? What we're saying is to prepare yourself for an uncertain world, you need to be able to sense and respond to that world by constantly incorporating knowledge in order to navigate it effectively, which is understanding your environment, understanding your arena, understanding yourself and being able to respond to the constant change in the world. So on an individual level, that's what we're talking about. And on a blown out level in an organizational sense, you need to be able to create a system and create an organizational structure that enables you to sense and respond to change the fastest. So I, I heard an interesting example of this. Airbnb during the pandemic, obviously, is really substantially hit by the fact that tourists aren't going abroad and traveling now. So they actually pivoted during the pandemic to reorganize their website so that it was focusing on local stays and they were able to shift and change and respond so quickly to the situation that they were able to create almost like a new micro economy for themselves where they were enabling people to go on vacations in their local area so you can see the people and the companies that are going to be able to navigate this arena effectively are going to be the ones that can do that that can sense and respond to big changes really quite quickly yes you're absolutely right and the ability to respond quickly and in an agile and adaptive way are the ones who are going to succeed most and there is so much change going on i mean covid it's probably the biggest world event since the market crash of 2008 and will go down in history as being a huge pivotal moment. For all the knock-on consequences we were talking about earlier, it will require organizations to think and act very differently. One of the interesting debates going on, which is relating back to this sort of fixed industrial thinking, metrosization, bureaucratic model driving efficiency, is that what that's left is a lot of organizations very brittle, fragile. Because if things change, you've baked in a fixed, super efficient way of dealing with something which presupposes that everything is certain and you can just deliver your efficient process to deliver your product or service. But if the world changes, if there's a tectonic shift somewhere, you've got no capacity to absorb change, so you break. So what are resilient organizations look like and this is a conversation going on a lot in institutions at the moment do we need to sacrifice some efficiency to have some extra capacity so that we can pivot and change without collapsing and then beyond that can we now absorb and recognize that we're in a world that's liable to change quite dramatically so we gear ourselves up to sense and respond more quickly than anyone else, i.e. that we become anti-fragile, <laughs> that we can actually thrive on change rather than be knocked over by it. But part of understanding what that change needs to be and looping that back to metrics again is one of the weaknesses of metrics, and they come out of this industrial age where you know, we have factory production lines and processes, and we can measure transactions. So often metrics, when you actually lift up the hood and say, what are we measuring? in metrics, they're usually transactions, events, things that something happened that you can record. So they're sort of activity-based usually. When we're dealing in a, in a world of real people and real society, what those metrics don't often account for is why did someone do that? What are they feeling? 
What is their understanding of what's going on? All of that human-centered sphere of how people feel, how they make sense, what motivations and beliefs do they have, are not captured by the normal way we think of metrics. They're, They're kind of ephemeral. They're sort of out there. But metrics end up being lagging indicators. They tell you what happened in the past. But if you understand how people think and feel, you get a better center of their disposition, what they're likely to do in the future. It can be massively insightful about how we could be doing things differently and to what degree people are starting to shift in their thinking and beliefs towards something else that we can be ready for. So metrics, as they're currently instituted as transactional event-based things, need to be supplemented by new forms of human-centered measures about how we're thinking and feeling and what we believe and our motivations and dispositions, such that we can link more accurately what our institutions are doing to the felt sense of how it is to live with and make decisions that will drive different behaviors and outcomes in society. We need to be more aware of that. And I think bringing that expertise and insight to supplement how we're doing what we're doing gives the more complete picture to perform better and to spot opportunities to adapt and change in in a much richer and earlier way. And metrics really are just one example of something that has come from an industrial way of thinking Mm. that is leading into our arena. There are just so many things that we need to evaluate and reflect upon that have come from our arena and are currently co-evolving with us so everything you said about looking at things more holistically you looking at people's humanity not just looking at them as a number we need to be thinking about this because we need to be thinking how do we want to shape the arena because if we don't and if we just allow corporations other companies other people to shape things based on the legacy of an old world view of an old way of thinking then that arena will come inevitably But if we can talk about these subjects, if we can think, hang on a second, why is that here? What's going on? Why have we got this way of seeing the world? And how do we evolve it? How do we change it? How do we adapt? We can start actually being more proactive as individuals on how we proactively participate in our arena. I fully agree with you there. And it's just reminded me also that One of the reasons that this can be a drift between institutions and us as agents, us as humans, is the frame by which institutions look at us, which is in some ways encapsulated by the language they use to describe us. So private sector companies will often refer to us as consumers, as though the only interesting thing about us as human beings is that we consume stuff. We're kind of a hollowed out shell. None of the other parts of our humanity matter. The only thing that matters is that we consume stuff. So it's a degraded, reduced view of what a human being is. And emptying people out of their humanity means They're not thinking about it. It's not concern in how they relate to us. Our acts of consumption are the only thing that matter. You switch that to uh, software, and someone made the point that the only other industry that talks about other human beings who use their products as users is uh, the drugs industry. (laughs) Users of my product, or users of crack cocaine. 
someone is more than a user. They're a human being with a life and a story and dreams and ambitions. It's the same with health, where I've been doing a lot of work. The, the word patient is used universally, but the word patient is a, a way of conceiving of a human being, almost like a medical condition with legs. <laughs> it misses out that the fact there is a human story and a human person and a human drama and, and hopes and dreams and aspirations that lie behind that. And that this orientation of using reductive language to describe us as agents in the arena or the human being is missing out on an account of our, our humanity and in its missing out, justifying why they should only take account of the bit of our humanity that's of interest to them. If we're going to create an arena that can truly nourish us and one that we can fully participate in in, in ways that we've been talking about around human flourishing, we need to see that we are not just consumers or patients or users. We are human beings. And that the lens in which institutions look at us needs to be expanded to account for and understand and acknowledge the full richness of the human being on which they're in service to. I think when we open that frame up, the institutional frame looking back at the public, what we will open up is the opportunity to engage in a different way with us as individuals and collectively, if our institutions can see us in that way, an opportunity to broaden and nourish their engagement with us, which could lift society to a higher level. And that's what I hope to see, and certainly in the work I, I do, trying to advocate for that more human-centred view, such that our institutions truly become in service of us, rather than extracting from us or treating us in a reductive way that is, even if it's unintentional, degrading somewhat of our own humanity. Because collectively, if we continue in that way, our institutions are not in service of us. Many, many times we find ourselves in service of our institutions, which feels like it's the wrong way around. And I think from the agent standpoint, we have to be really aware of this idea of dynamic coupling, that we are coupled to our environment, that we are influenced by and shaped by it, but we also have a responsibility in how we interact with it. So if we are called consumers because we have a materialistic worldview and we consume a lot. It's not just that our environment is shaping us to behave that way, although it without doubt is, is that we are participating and enacting that behavior in the same way that when we're thought of as users on online, perhaps we need to evaluate our habits when it comes to how we interact with technology. Are we treating it as a tool or are we actually addicted to our time spent on a screen? So for me, one of the important takeaways for people that are thinking about agency and how that interacts with our arena, it's like, well, what are the actions that you can do so that you're not playing into the stereotype that's been created in the arena? Because we are coupled to that arena and to shift it means it's got to come mm. from within us. It's us as agents, as individuals. Yeah, fully agree. If our agency, our sovereignty and autonomy is coupled with the arena we find ourselves in. The institutions that inhabit that arena are attempting to define us in ways that suit them. <laughs> what we're doing is essentially losing some of our agency and autonomy and sovereignty. 
So this conscious self-awareness to step back, to think about, to critique, to reflect on what choices am I making that the arena is trying to call for me to make in service of what the arena and the institutions within the arena want? And what is it that I really need and want? And what can I do to reclaim some of my own sovereignty in terms of what is important to me and those around me that I can take more responsibility and more control of creating for myself and those around me the sort of life that is most nourishing and fulfilling and not falling prey to the narratives and invitations that can often come out of the institutional setting to get us to behave in ways that suit the the institutions and the arena. But going back to a point that I think we made in the last discussion is that as well as being agents, we're also involved in the arena through the work that we do, the institutions that we work in. So with a more enlightened outlook, we have the opportunity within the institutions that we work within to bring a little bit more of this human-centered thinking. And what's interesting for me talking to lots of people is there is a felt sense amongst a lot of people that the legacy industrial ways of thinking that still dominate the way that a lot of organizations think and act doesn't feel right. There's something missing. There's a felt sense that we could be doing more in service of people, of the world out there and customers we saw, and to each other. So it's really sort of getting people to reflect if they do feel that, that is authentic and real. Think about it, act upon it, be brave, be courageous, because in shaping and changing our institutions from within, we have the chance to build a better arena for us to inhabit and for our children. I think the questions to ask ourselves and to prepare ourselves for the next podcast conversation that we'll have, but the, the question for everyone to ask themselves is, what are we participating in? Because yeah. when we participate in something, we are giving power to the things that we are participating in. So evaluate them. I think that's such an important thing because when we talk about the arena, yes, we are talking about society at large, civilization at large, but you do have control of some certain aspects of the world that you're in. So how are you participating in it? And I think the other question that's worth us all thinking about is what else have we lost from the industrial way of thinking? And what is it that we want to bring into our arena? What is it that we want to say actually This is something that we need to bring back from the things that we've lost in the industrial way of thinking. And finally, probably the last one that I would ask myself is, what do we not want to lose from our current arena as we evolve into our next arena, as we keep moving and our environment keeps evolving? I think they're the things that would be the takeaways from this conversation. Yes, and it would be good to explore that next. I mean, we've critiqued many things in the arena and the institutions. And part of this discussion, I think, was to critique it. There are many strengths, as I think we've indicated a couple of times in the conversation, and and many things that are amazing about what we've built as a civilization. And we need to be cognizant of the strengths of the institutions that we've built and some of the huge benefits of the arena, while also being aware of how we might critique it. Because one thing is absolutely certain is that in a world of seven, eight billion people with 
increasingly sophisticated systems and technologies and ideas and interconnection between people across the globe in a more globalized world, we will need institutions. We will need institutions that will play a significant role in shaping the arena that we will inhabit in the future. So we can't wish them away. (laughs) We can critique them. We can think about how might they be better? How might they, as we've been talking in this discussion, move progressively away from the industrial-based thinking, the metrics, the economic spreadsheet way of thinking about politics and how we run institutions to something much more tuned into value and human centeredness. But we need to take what worked, the strengths of the past, combine it with fresh insights and new energy. But I think all of this, as many of our discussions are culminating in, really have their answer located in, this is the time to rediscover and celebrate what it is to be human individually and collectively. And that all of this shaping and rethinking is in service of ourselves and our collective to be able to flourish in a greater way ever possible with the fruits of our own creations, which are becoming richer and more sophisticated. How do we make that harmonious, positive, uplifting, fulfilling, that history will look back at this moment and say, how amazing that we took this moment to take what we had learned from the past, build with the new, and created a whole new level for for civilization to reach. That is a goal worth thinking about and goal worth fighting for, I think. So that's the end of episode three. I think you can see why it felt like two separate conversations in one here. If we had split it up, I probably would have called the second part the tyranny of metrics. I have no idea for the first, but I just thought that could be a nice name for the episode. But we can settle for legacy mindsets. I hope the idea of legacy mindsets has really raised some questions in your mind. And although we did finish with a couple of questions to think on at the end of the episode, I wanted to leave you with one more to ponder over, which is, what are some of the other ways of thinking and perceiving the world that we carry with us from the past that shape our world today? If we look back on that conversation, for the most part, we were focusing specifically on one aspect of industrialization and its tendency to reduce the human story to units, measurements and things. That way of thinking seems to gravitate towards mistaking the part for the whole, looking at a number on a spreadsheet instead of the human, looking at a grade instead of an education. So that's something to ponder over and we would love to know your opinion on this. What do you think? What did we miss? What would you like us to spend more time on? Finally, I would like to take the opportunity to say thank you for listening and tuning into the show and participating with us. It means a lot to Andy and I and we're super thrilled that you're joining us on this journey. All the links of people and books we mentioned are in the show notes as well as our contact details so there's plenty to explore until the next episode. If you're curious as to how to support the show, the best thing you could do is share the show with a friend that you think could appreciate what we're talking about and get more people participating in the conversation. Okay, let's wrap this up. It has been a pleasure. Until the next time, take care.